0: Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted December 9, 2016, we talk with Hong Kong native and activist Jeffrey No about a recent WPI blog post he co-authored on the continuing struggle for autonomy and democracy on the island and a new historical approach. We'll also point out top features in the WPJ fall issue, cover theme, History's Ghosts. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. Thousands protested in the streets of Hong Kong last month against an expected local court ruling directed by Beijing that blocked two young pro-autonomy activists from taking seats in the legislature because they sidestepped the precisely worded loyalty oath required by China. It was the most dramatic such demonstration since the failed umbrella movement in 2014 a 79-day sit-in against Beijing's insistence on pre-screening candidates to be the island's chief executive, despite a 1997 agreement to avoid Chinese political intervention for 50 years under terms of Hong Kong's basic law, that's its mini-constitution as a special administrative region of China. Days after the court ruling, Republican Senators Marco Rubio of Florida and Tom Cotton of Arkansas offered at least moral support to the continuing autonomy campaign with a bill spawned by earlier Chinese arrests of five Hong Kong booksellers. It would allow the US to freeze assets and bar entry to those behind surveillance, abduction, detention, or forced confessions and other actions suppressing basic freedoms. But it remains to be seen if the legislation will win support from an even more firmly Republican-controlled Congress and from GOP President-elect Donald Trump after both his tirades against China and reportedly warm conversation with President Xi Jinping. Meanwhile, Umbrella Movement leader Joshua Wong and Hong Kong colleague Jeffrey No. Now, a master's degree candidate at New York University, have opened a new front in the fight for autonomy in the island's colonial and post colonial archives. They co authored an article about it for World Policy Journal, headlined Reclaiming Our Right to Self Determination in Post Umbrella Hong Kong. And No talked about it for this podcast. Jeffrey No, welcome to World Policy On Air. Hi. Uh, history might seem a strange battleground for determining the future, but your key point is that so much of Hong Kong's changing status was determined in secret. Remind us of the negotiations between colonial ruler Great Britain and the People's Republic of China.
1: Hong Kong has since the mid-19th century been a British colony. And uh, and, you know, and when the United Nations was established in 1945, um, one of its core uh, ideals Uh, is to grant, you know, all peoples the right to self-determination. And so in 1946, the year after, they began cataloging uh, a list of non-self-governing territories of which Hong Kong was rightly included. Um, But by the 1970s, by 1972, actually, uh, you know, the United Nations decided to remove it, uh, remove Hong Kong from that list. And so Hong Kongers have lost their right to self-determination, and so by the 1980s, uh, actually between 1982 and 1984, uh, the colonial power, which was Great Britain, uh, and the PRC uh, had negotiated behind closed doors of Hong Kong's future. And the, uh, the, the sort of their agreement was a transfer of sovereignty uh, from the UK to China by 1997.
0: The visit of, or the opening to China by Richard Nixon played an interesting dynamic in, in the decision by the UN to remove it from the list.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, um, you know, the PRC was established in 1949, and it was during the uh, the early days of the Cold War. And understandably, uh, America did not uh, recognize the PRC uh, as a legitimate country because it wished to contain the spread of communism. And so it had always recognized the ROC, the Republic of China, which is Taiwan, uh, until President Richard Nixon decided to establish diplomatic relations with China, with with, with mainland China, and so he and his uh, national security advisor and later Secretary of State Henry Kissinger engineered this sort of what what they called the ping-pong diplomacy to establish the relations with the PRC, and that sort of opened the the possibility for the PRC to join the UN uh, as a member state, and uh, and as a result, the PRC did join uh, in October. Well, a resolution was passed in October 1971. And uh, they formally joined in November of 1971. And so the, the interesting thing is that, you know, just four months after the PRC had joined the UN, uh, its ambassador to the UN, Huang Hua, uh, had requested the special committee of decolonization to remove Hong Kong from the list of non-self-governing territories, as I was saying earlier. So, I mean, so, so there's this... It, it, it all comes together, so with, with you know, with President Nixon's... Um, Intention to establish and to recognise the PRC and therefore allowing it to enter the u n and 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 then subsequently with with China's request to remove Hong Kong uh, from that list and and therefore you know making Hong Kongers lose the right to self determination.
0: So in a way, the Nixon recognition gave them leverage in the United Nations to, uh, to uh, open that trap to, uh, to gain control of Hong Kong. Talk about the, the roots of current campaigning for at least the autonomy and democracy that were promised by Beijing, and particularly the importance of the Tiananmen Square Massacre, increasingly erased from official Chinese history, as we discussed just recently on this podcast.
1: Um, There there are obviously very uh, similar parallels one can draw uh, between, for example, the Umbrella Movement in Hong Kong two years ago uh, and the Tiananmen Massacre of 89. I mean, you know, during the early days of the Umbrella Movement, um, you know, people, I mean, protesters were were genuinely worried that this would, you know, turn into another uh, Tiananmen Massacre with the use of, not just pepper spray, but also with tear gas and and and, and that is a really rare scene in, in in hong kong and and so people were rightly worried but it it, it turned out to be uh, peaceful generally peaceful uh, from uh, on, on both sides so so that was good but I mean obviously, there are also deeper connections between uh, the umbrella movement and the the, uh, the uh, protests of eighty nine in that um, they were mostly led by uh, student Protesters at the time, and uh, and they demanded greater freedom, greater autonomy, uh, greater you know degree of democracy uh, from Beijing, from, from from the same regime. And uh, and unfortunately, I would have to say though, at this point, uh, the umbrella movement has not been successful in in achieving in allowing Hong Kong to achieve genuine uh, genuine universal suffrage from from the Beijing regime. Uh, just at the Tiananmen protests of 89 had not successfully uh, uh, led to a democratized democratized, uh, China.
0: And Well, moving from protest, how do you see the political approach taken by Joshua Wong and pro-democracy forces from several parties that actually won 30 seats in the 70-member Legislative Council, now minus the two who were blocked, I guess? It,
1: it, it is a, a a good thing to to see the, the results of the Legislative Council election this year in Hong Kong with, as you said, 30 out of the 70 seats, uh, you know, uh, on, on, the, on the pro-democracy side, which, of course, encompasses different groups and political parties with, you know, varying degrees of, 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 uh, of you know, of, of how they wish to have autonomy in Hong Kong uh, from Beijing. Um, and, you know, I mean, um, the 70 seats in, in Hong Kong's legislatures, actually only 35, which is half of it, are directly elected by the people. And within the 35 Um, Just forget about the two. Well, assuming the two uh, now disqualified uh, candidates have not been disqualified, then out of the 35, um, 19 was actually won by the the, the pro-democracy side and only 16 by the pro-Beijing side. So so it's clear that Hong Kongers are electing more um, pro-democracy politicians to represent them in the legislature than they do for the pro-Beijing ones. Um, But then, despite always winning the majority of votes. Um, the pro-democracy camp has not uh, been able to, to, to gain a sort of majority in the, in the legislature itself because only half are, are directly elected. And so I think, I mean, on the long run, I think you know, that there, there really has to be a change in the system to allow the, the will of the people to, to, to be genuinely heard. But with respect to this particular election itself, um, you know the results are are actually good because compared to you know four years ago in two thousand and twelve uh, actually more seats have been won uh, on the pro democracy side three, three more actually because it was it was twenty seven uh, from from the election of two thousand and twelve so so the the, the, the pro democracy camp has has grown. And has expanded, and it now also encompasses a, a, a bigger spectrum. I mean, the two uh, recently disqualified candidates, as we were just talking about, they are the more sort of pro-independence leaning candidates. And also um, for Joshua Wong's party, uh, Democratic, uh, its chairman uh, Nathan Law uh, has won a seat uh, at age 23, actually, as the as the youngest legislator in Hong Kong's history, and he does not advocate independence, but he, along with two other members of the, two other newly elected members of the legislature, advocate self-determination. So self-determination and independence, these voices have not previously been heard um, prior to the Umbrella Movement. So they're they're new political discourses, and respectively, um, you know, the people representing these voices have been elected into the legislature, and, and, uh, and I think that's a good sign because that means um, the, the, the legislature is responding to the changes in political discourse among the people.
0: How and why did you and Joshua Wong settle on a new parallel historical approach to the struggle? How does it empower future action?
1: Part of what we advocate is self-determination, and, and, and the concept of self-determination, as, what, as I was saying earlier, Um, was actually, you know, first introduced, uh, or or as it is understood today, first introduced with the establishment of the United Nations after World War II. And it really uh, came into global prominence during the 1960s, which was an era of global decolonization. And the idea behind it was that all colonized people have the right to decide their future so so whether uh, they would achieve independence or whether they would uh, join another existing state uh, or, or 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 you know or or form some kind of alliance, different kind of political imaginations was possible, but the the prerequisite was was the uh, consensus of the people themselves and 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 that you know is Lacking that, that that was you know that right was removed uh, from Hong Kongers, and the reason for you know tracing back to history was that was was nothing but the failure of one country's two systems itself. I mean the the arrangement by the British and the Chinese negotiators of the 80s was that Hong Kong would remain unchanged, uh, its capitalist system would remain unchanged, its freedoms would not decline uh, for 50 years from 1997 onward. Um, Next year is 2017, so it will be only 20 years next year. Uh, But so far, you know, so many has already changed. So many things have already changed. As you introduced uh, in the beginning, you know, there were the the adoption of five booksellers in Hong Kong uh, who sold books critical of the Beijing regime. Um, There's also clear signs of eroding freedoms, be they press freedom, freedom of speech, uh, academic freedom. And so... It is the it is the clear signs that one country two systems is failing, uh, because Beijing's intrusion and intervention into so many of Hong Kong's affairs as it is not supposed to, um, that has led to us you know that has led us into questioning um, whether the current arrangement the current system of one country two systems uh, is legitimate in the first place, and it is with that in mind that we started looking. Back into history and understanding how um, Hong Kongers were supposed to have the right to self determination, um, but which was wrongly removed from Hong Kongers in the 1970s and in the 1980s. And so, you know, an understanding of the past, I believe, is, is, is crucial uh, to talking about self determination today, uh, which is also about the future.
0: Uh, we mentioned the, the, the leverage that uh, President Nixon gave China by recognizing it uh, and uh, the degree and the, the speed with which they then uh, pressured the Special Committee on Decolonization to remove Hong Kong. You were surprised by reaction, initial reaction in the international media and even in Hong Kong itself.
1: Before talking about the international media, of, of course, I just would like to add that um, I think the, 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 the Nixon administration's um, intention to establish diplomatic relations with the PRC is not necessarily bad in, in, in terms of, uh, you know, for, from, from a sort of global peacekeeping perspective. It is always good to have friends and enemies. But the, the, the problem, of course, is, as you said, that once the PRC had joined the UN, um, you know, the, the, there hasn't been significant efforts to block its request to remove Hong Kong from uh, from the, the 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 list of non-self-governing territories. And, and you know, the U.S. certainly had the, the power to do that. Uh, I don't think it exercised it. And, and, of course, even more responsible than the Americans, I, I would argue, are the British and the Portuguese themselves, because the, you know, the, the British were the ones who colonized Hong Kong and the Portuguese were the ones who colonized Macau, and they were in the best position to object to China's uh, sort of classification of, of Hong Kong and Macau as its own territory rather than as, uh, as, as colonies, but they didn't. And, uh, an interesting thing is that actually that the, uh, you know, between 1971 and 1973. So during every, uh, during this time when everything happened, the American ambassador to the UN, uh, was future president George HW Bush. Hmm. And, um, and yeah, and 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 so the 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 resolution to replace um, ROC with the PRC actually it, it was bundled together. So one vote for removing ROC and then replacing with the PRC, but it was actually uh, Ambassador Bush uh, who had proposed in the General Assembly itself that you know that the two should should be, uh, voted separately. So, so, so president, well, I mean, amb- amb- ambassador, Bush, uh, wished to retain ROC in the UN while, uh, you know, while admitting the PRC, which would have been, you know, a, a better outcome. I, I, I would argue, but, um, but his proposal was blocked by the, the general assembly. So it, you know, altogether it was, it was, uh, it was subject to one vote and ambassador, Bush actually voted no to the resolution, so it, 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 he ended up not—he uh, ended up voting uh, not for the PRC to join the UN because, the P- because he didn't want the ROC to be replaced. Um but obviously that didn't matter because the resolution did end up passing and, and, and then leading to the PRC's admittance in the UN and then which then of course led to its uh, pressure on the special committee of decolonization to remove Hong Kong from the list of non self governing territories. So 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 the role that the, the US had played, uh I mean the Nixon administration certainly set the, the, the stage for for the international recognition of, of the PRC, uh but you know, but what Ambassador Bush uh, at the UN did uh, was 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 actually, you know, that he actually tried to try to voice a, a certain, you know, disagreement with 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 the the PRC's um, with with the arrangement of removing ROC at the, uh, you know, uh, while admitting the PRC. But of course, he didn't do as much when it came to. Uh, objecting the, the, uh, the declassification of Hong Kong as colonies. And and, and with your point about the, um, the international media, I mean, you, you're certainly right in that um, there was not a lot of coverage about this problem. Um, you know, when Huang Hua, the Chinese ambassador to the UN, uh, wrote to the chairperson of the Special Committee of Decolonization about removing Hong Kong from the list, I believe it was March 8th, of 72 uh the new york times actually reported it um and it was probably the the, the one of the handful of, of newspapers that gave any attention and they did no follow up and uh and more importantly uh as as much as uh, you know uh more importantly you know with the, the the media in hong kong itself um did not report it so so hong kong during nineteen seventy two uh, was no longer classified or no longer understood or no longer defined by the international community as a colony, so there was a, a change in his status according to the u n and yet there is no coverage about it within hong kong itself and 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 you know and one could only assume that. Hong Kongers did not know about this arrangement, uh, which happened all within the UN General Assembly half the world away in, in New York City. And and so, you know, the, the the problem being that uh because it was not known then, uh it is not known today either, or not widely known today, uh either. So so, so part of what Joshua and I wanted to do uh in the in the article we wrote for the World Policy Journal and, and also our other work is to is to educate and is to inform uh, people around the world and, of course, also within Hong Kong about this forgotten history.
0: For too long, you argue, Hong Kong has been depicted as little more than a global finance hub, notably part of the New York-London Hong Kong network that Time Magazine dubbed uh, Nylon Kong. And and you see clear signs of a transition on the island to a post-materialist age. Neoliberalism, capitalism—these the, are very much
1: deeply rooted in in Hong Kong's culture, uh, and Hong Kong is undoubtedly a, a a global financial center that is vital to 21st century, uh, you know, you know, commerce, trade, and 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 I don't and I don't think these are likely to go away in the future, and um, and you know but the 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 idea is that I think uh, for the for the generation of young people uh, which of course include Joshua and myself, I think while we recognize that, you know, ne- neoliberalism and capitalism as sort of inherent core values of Hong Kong, what we are also seeing is that, uh, materialist pursuits, um, are not the goal in life. So, um, they may be important, they may not be important, in addition to material pursuits, it seems like um, we are now moving to a sort of post-materialist uh, era where values such as democracy, autonomy, human rights, uh, freedom they are also what our generation treasures. And, and, and this, is, this, I think, is, is new because um, you know Hong Kong, prior to 1997 was a colony and Hong Kongers did not have the right to exercise uh the, the any any power or a, any representation beyond casting a vote in the legislature which is designed to be controlled by the elite anyway as you know as half of the seats are not directly elected. And so it you know, it is sort of like a, a, a common ideal or or uh, or a consensus among older generations that uh, you know, you can live a good life if you do not touch politics. You could, you know, get a job, uh, become a professional, earn money, buy a house, buy a car. Um, you know, these as, as much as these are important. Um, the new generation seems to be saying, um, you know, this is not enough. We we have to we have to worry about our future, uh, and we of course have to worry about the present. Uh, and, and, and part of that, I think, has a lot to do with the experience of this generation. I mean, um, both Joshua and myself and our generation are, are born in the 1990s. So we, we our upbringing saw a transition of Hong Kong from a British colony to a Chinese special administrative region. And at least for myself, you know, part of my childhood and, and, and part of growing up is witnessing the downfall of Hong Kong, as I was talking about, you know, the, the erosion of, of, of freedoms in, in different levels, um, and just reading about the news every day, that, that Beijing is again interfering uh, Hong Kong to a greater extent, and, and I think these experiences and, and seeing these changes really have, have, have led to our, uh, our values, uh, the, the change in our values.
0: But at least, as far as Beijing is concerned, isn't the strongest case for autonomy and democracy on the island that without it, China would see far less international economic activity, income, and leverage?
1: I think you're absolutely right in 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 that. Um, I mean, not even not even to Beijing, but to the world. Um, you know, how do we make a case for? for the international community to care about Hong Kong. Well the, the, the easiest answer is to is to emphasize Hong Kong's importance in the global capitalist system. I mean um you know to convince Washington to uh to conduct you know its foreign policy with regard to Hong Kong for example uh, would mean having to convince them that, you know, Hong Kong is vital to American business interests. So so I mean, you know, as I was saying earlier, I don't think it is possible. Nor is anyone trying to, you know, replace or overthrow Hong Kong's capitalist system, or 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 to sort of, um, uh, you know, re- rebel against that. I think I think neoliberalism is is too rooted in the culture of Hong Kong to ever go away. But it is the emphasis that um, that as much as economic activity is important. Uh, so, are you know stuff like democracy, autonomy, human rights, and and and, and also you know it why 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 are so many international corporations, transnational corporations, you know, having all setting up offices or headquarters in Hong Kong? Well, that has a lot to do with Hong Kong's strategic interest to them because it is once one foot into the Chinese market, but also Hong Kong has been able to retain. Is difference, uh, you know, most notably the, the rule of law, uh, which is otherwise not seen in the rest of China. So, so there, really, uh, there really is a case to be made that uh, preserving rule of law or preserving autonomy in Hong Kong uh, benefits Hong Kongers, of course, but also benefits, you know, uh, the, the, the global financial network and, and, and the capitalist system.
0: What are your expectations, hopes, and fears as far as pressure from the U.S. Congress, as Senators Rubio and have proposed, and from the very ambiguous Donald Trump as president?
1: It's just November now, so it's, it's, it's Donald Trump has been elected um, earlier this month uh, to be the next president of the United States. And, and it, it hasn't been that long, but you know, so far he has already uh, he, it seems like he has already uh, turned back his campaign promises to, for example, uh, go after you know Hillary Clinton, uh, his opponent, and also uh, turn back on his promise to his voters to repeal Obamacare. So I think I think the what we can see from 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 these uh, shifts is nothing but the inconsistency of Trump's sort of proposed. Uh, uh, proposed policies during his campaigning and, and what he actually plans to do as president. So I think there's, it, it is tremendously uh, uh, difficult at this point to see what his policy regarding China or even regarding Hong Kong uh, will be. And, and, and I certainly, I will speak for myself in, in, in saying that I am worried about Trump's isolationism or alleged isolationism in which he seems to be uh, advocating a withdrawal of, of, of the United States in different arenas of, of, of the international community, uh, for example, NATO or, or, or other trade deals, uh, and his idea being that he has to put America first, and, and the worry, of course, is that uh, you know he will not uphold the American commitment to um, to helping. Mm-hmm. Uh, the world, uh, you know, different places around the world to advance democracy or advance human rights. But I think at this point, it is still too soon to speak uh, about, you know, what his presidency may mean. And I think we have yet to we have yet to see. And, uh, and with regard to the to the bill that you were talking about proposed by uh, Senators Rubio and Cotton. Um, so they are both Republican uh, senators, and, and, and the Republicans will have control in both houses of Congress starting next year. So the prospect of passing it, at, at, at least at this point, I think is optimistic, although certainly uh, I don't think as activists from Hong Kong we should limit our call for American support of democracy in Hong Kong to the Republican side of Washington. I mean, I, I think, and I, and I really do hope that Um, As I was talking about, you know, upholding values, universal values such as human rights and democracy is really what, you know, as as a foreign policy direction of of the United States, it's really what both parties can agree on. And so I think it will be nice to have Republican support, but it will be even nicer to have both the Republicans and the Democrats to support it. And, uh, and, 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 I think that will be the case. And I hope that will be the case, but we won't know until next congressional year, because I, I doubt it will pass, uh, with the, with, with the time remaining, this congressional calendar.
0: But you and Joshua did go down to Washington and lobby on both sides of the aisle, uh, uh, in regards to this bill.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You so yeah, you're absolutely right. Last week, actually, uh, Joshua and I went down to Washington, um, and we actually met with four members of Congress. Uh two of them were of course Senators Rubio and Cotton who co sponsored the bill. Um but we also uh had the great opportunity to meet with Democratic House leader and former Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, and also uh, Representative Waltz from Minnesota. And and you know, and the, the, the feeling that we get is that um you know supporting supporting uh an autonomous Hong Kong is in fact a bipartisan consensus. And, and, you know, I really do hope that is reflected when the bill is, you know, again, introduced on the Senate floor and on the House floor next congressional year. uh, And, and yeah. Jeffrey, no, thank you. It's great speaking with you.
0: Umbrella Movement leader Joshua Wong and Hong Kong colleague Jeffrey No, now a master's degree candidate in global history at New York University, co-authored the World Policy Journal article headlined Reclaiming Our Right to Self-Determination in Post-Umbrella Hong Kong. Days after we spoke, President-elect Trump dramatically challenged China's sense of sovereignty for better or worse by accepting a quietly prearranged call of congratulations from the President of Taiwan the first female leader it has ever elected, ironically, given Trump's bitter battle against Hillary Clinton. Not since 1979 has there been direct communication between leaders of the United States and Democratic Taiwan, which Beijing considers merely a special province under its one-China policy, though the U.S. maintains commercial and military connections there. There was speculation that Trump might even meet the Taiwan president next month in New York, on her transit stop en route to Guatemala that the Obama State Department refused to block as China requested. Trump sent a more sympathetic signal by announcing as his ambassador to Beijing, Iowa's longtime GOP Governor Terry Branstad, who has extensive ties to China and a friendship with President Xi dating back to 1985. Featured in the WPJ fall issue, History's Ghosts, you'll find articles on what lessons from history keep being forgotten, on silencing the echoes of Tiananmen, and on the decline of sovereignty in the Arab world by award-winning Beirut-based columnist and commentator Rami J. And listen next week when our podcast will consider growing anti-government, anti-globalist, anti-immigrant echoes of the Trump and Brexit campaigns across Europe these days. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, Managing Editor Jaffa Frederick, Podcast Producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.